Welcome to episode 81 of Texting, hosted by myself, Justin Vincent, and Jason Roberts. On today's show, we're mixing it up a little, and we're having a panel show with two special guests, Pete Michaud and Rob Walling. Hey guys, how you doing? Uh, well, I guess I guess if I say hey guys, then you'll both answer at once. So, hey Rob, thanks for coming on the show. <laughs> yeah, thanks thanks for having me back. It's it's good to be here. And Pete Michaud of PeteMichaud.com. Thank you very much. So Justin, I think you need to work on the uh, Leo Laporte, do like a Leo Laporte style intro. Yeah, it's true. I mean, like I'm not too familiar with the panel show format yet. So yeah. So what Leo does, I've noticed, is is he won't introduce everybody at the same at the same time. He'll just do one, introduce one person, start talking to them and about them a little mm. bit, and then sometimes he doesn't even get to Dvorak until like 50 or 20 minutes into the show. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Well, that would be great. I mean, if we if we could basically skip you out for fifteen minutes, that would yeah. work for me. Yeah, I'm sure it would. <laughs> so, uh, so hmm. Pete, we yes. talked to you when was it? Was it you said it was back in March when we? I want to say it was March. Yeah, yeah. And so. Rob, we interviewed you like probably what two months ago? It was like June, July? Yeah, I think it was episode fifty six ish. Right. Mine was thirty seven. Thirty seven. Okay. Yeah, nice. Yeah. Well, we're uh, we're in the this is eighty one, so we're like making we're making pace now. We're really picking up speed. Gangbusters, uh, yeah. So, well, the whole the whole idea for this was just that you know, Justin and I had talked about it, and we're like, you know, it would be really great to to talk to this these people we interviewed again because you know you talk to someone once and you interview them, and then it's like you never talk to them again. That kind of sucks. We figure, well, we can't really bring them on and ask them the same kind of questions again. We we sort of heard the background story. We figured it might be more interesting just to, you know, bring you guys on and just, you know, talk about a random set of topics. Maybe just hear an update on what you guys have been doing and just see how it uh, how it plays out. But Jason, I also think it's a little bit like a a kind of mastermind group, especially if we get rock stars like Pete and Rob on the show. You know, <laughs> right? Maybe Rob. I think we should just mastermind Justin. Let's <laughs> yeah. just sit around and tell Justin what he should do. Um, well, so why don't we start uh, with you, uh, uh, Pete, since it's been the longest since we've sure. talked to you. What, uh, what have you been up to in the last uh, what, six or so months? I have been... Okay, so when I talked to you last, I had pretty much automated the business to the point that... My publishing business, I mean, to the point that it could run itself in terms of selling products that already existed. And my involvement with the company at that point was creating new products. So fast oh, forward. We should, we should back up real quick. You had, when we, for anyone who hasn't heard the interview, and this is 39, right? Up to 39? 37, what'd you say it was? I, th I said it was 37, but you know, it might be in 38. It's somewhere around there. Something like there. You had, cre you had created a handful of eBooks. Right. Is that that, and the revenue off of those eBooks um, had essentially led you to write the blog post "Retired at 25," which is how right. we sort of, uh, which brought you to our attention, um, and and that's what we discussed quite a bit was how you went about coming up with the ideas for these eBooks, how you wrote them and published them, and how you were able to generate revenue from them, and uh, yeah, so I just wanted to get that through so that people know kind of what we're talking about. Right. Okay. So the business sells ebooks and and printed books also and we sell the ebooks in the in pdf format and on kindle and on ipad and and whatever whatever other ebook formats we output to and we we've been doing that for over a year now and it's been very successful and like i said we automated it to the point that we didn't have to do anything to just sell additional copies of books that we've already made 
now, if you fast forward till now, I, I am almost there, but not quite to the point where even making the books is automated. So <laughs> that's yeah, they, they just write themselves. <laughs> they, they just write themselves. That's right. <laughs> that is amazing. No, okay. it, essentially it's uh, an army of qualified contractors, which were very, very difficult to find because people who can really uh, write well consistently and that sort of thing, they're, they're difficult to find, but we found them tied together with a piece of software that I'm almost done writing, which is essentially workflow software that passes jobs from researchers to writers to typesetters and et cetera. And, and essentially all we have to do is spot check for quality before it goes out the door. So we're almost to the point where it's completely automated. We're, we're trying it for the first time, the, the system that we've built, we're trying it for the first time this month, and we're going to come out with 12 new titles this month, which is a lot. I mean, it's, it's one book every two or three days, roughly, which is huge for a 50,000-word book. And if it works, then we'll ramp up to more like 30 books a month, and um, if we can get it to that point, then there there really isn't the and you're your, you're in your your own publishing company, really. I mean, you're a, right. Well, exactly. you know, see, Justin, the problem with bringing Pete on the show is it just makes me feel bad about myself. <laughs> <laughs> Justin's laughing because Pete's like you know he's like twenty five. What are you about twenty six by now? I'm going to turn twenty six on the twenty seventh. Actually, he's not even twenty six. We're crying out loud. And he's not only retired. He's he's having he's auto generating an empire. So yeah. what, what's interesting is that uh, the company that I used to work for, Reed Elsevier, essentially, that this is a you know a forty thousand strong company. Yeah. This is this is the system that they had basically. You've you've <laughs> recreated a massive uh, sort of enterprise level publishing system, whereby you can have multiple authors checking stuff into the system, yeah. passing it round. You can proofread work. I mean, it's, it's it just sounds exactly the same as the way that Reed Elsevier published their books. And yeah. the fact that you've just done that yourself is pretty pretty astonishing. Okay, well, you know, so- I don't know what the quote is exactly, but I've I've read this a few times that if you're a programmer, it might be more valuable for you to not be a programmer. It might be more valuable for you to do something else and then use your skills as a programmer to make you better at that. So maybe that's what I've done here. I see. That's an interesting point. Yeah, it, it reminds me of what uh, the quote from um, Derek Sivers. He said that it was. I think it was Derek Sivers. He said something like, "If you if you can't leave, stop what you're doing for six months, then you're not a business owner. You're a you have a job. That's right. right. So you actually becoming a business owner as opposed to just your own self employed, you know, person. Right. So for these um for all these new books, do you, do you just research? topics that you think there's going to be some demand for and then write an outline for it? I mean, how, how, to, how do you set about auto-generating a book? Okay, so the first step is that we, we specialize mostly in medical books like we talked about before, like the, you know, the reactive hypoglycemia book and, that, and, and other books, niche medical topics. And so what we do is we comb the web and Amazon for niche medical topics that maybe have some juice in them in terms of uh, search traffic, but not that much competition and that sort of thing. And I I wrote a tool that you can input as a whole, a whole data set filled with these keywords 
And first, it'll find permutations on the keyword, so it'll be able to figure out if if there's another name for a syndrome, for example. And then once it once it has the the mutated data set, it analyzes each of the keywords for metrics like the average PR or the average page rank on Google for the first ten results and stuff like are there any titles on Amazon that are already competing in this space and basically what it does is it spits back all the keywords that are good or excellent I, I rank them in, in four different quadrants good and excellent are the, are the ones that we try to target and then once we have that list of keywords that are viable we put them into the system as as potential books and then our researchers can pick them up at will. So, are you are you? For, I'm assuming you're familiar with with Demand Media, but are you actually familiar with how the Demand Studios interface works? No. Yeah, okay. Go ahead. So, Demand Media kind of does what we're doing. They 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 take all this all this data from keyword data from the web, and they have figured out a way to automate the creation of very small articles, like 400 word articles for stuff like how do I weave a basket underwater or whatever. And some people think they're the scourge of the web, but other people are like, well, somebody's searching for this stuff and they're not being served. So demand media is serving them. And the way it works is that writers, once they are approved to become writers for demand media, have an interface where there are something ridiculous like 50,000 or 250,000 titles of articles and the articles don't exist but just the titles exist and the writers can claim the titles and then write the article and then submit it for editing and it's all automated and the and the titles for the articles come from an automated system that demand studios has so wow. in essentially the same way we have this big pool of potential books and our researchers can go into the pool and choose one of the potential books to research. And so what they do is they pull it out and say they they want to research Huntington's disease. They will pull up everything that's on the internet about Huntington's disease and compile it into one document, including academic databases, which we which we give them access to, which normally cost a bunch of money, but we've got access to them. And then once the research has been compiled, it's passed on to the writers. And the writers can choose whatever research is complete to flush out into a book. And part, part of the, the secret sauce for creating 30 or 300 books a month is that a lot of these books have related content. So if you have a for example, there are lots of disorders to do with the endocrine system. And so you might have a couple chapters related to the endocrine system explaining how it works and the kinds of things that can mess it up. Those couple chapters are identical in each one of these books. So the way we do it is that we have a system in which we can take the unique content, which is the majority of the book, we can take the unique content of the book and combine it with the boilerplate content that's already developed for the endocrine system or brain disorders or genetics or cancer or whatever, whatever the boilerplate is. And so somebody writes, say, 20,000 words of a book, we combine it with another 20,000 words of pre-written material that we've written that's good material, but it's, it's the same among maybe 20 different books and we combine them together and generate an RTF document that we send to the typesetter 
who then typesets it using InDesign and gives us a PDF that can that can be given to the printer. I just want to bring Rob Rob into the conversation here. Um, Rob, um, what what Pete does, uh, although he's not working on lots of little businesses, in, in a way, each book is like a little business. So it's kind of similar to the whole micropreneur concept that you're involved with. Yeah, it is. I actually, it's funny. I'm like really intrigued by by Pete's whole uh, story here. I have five or six questions for him already written down. So, <laughs> just because I, I do see a lot of parallels, and I and I have questions about like, well, how are you handling this? Because these are things. There are certain things I've had to struggle, you know, with with finding solutions for. And so I'm interested to see how, you know. Well, I say just just them. go for it. Like, yeah, let's hand them. it over to you, Rob. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Well, I'll, I'll run through a few things. So the first of all, Pete, I, I think the auto the that fact that you're automating this is is fascinating and, and really clever. This mm. is actually similar to um, Patrick McKenzie, the bingo card creator guy. He okay. has has set up uh, SEO, long tail SEO automation. Mm-hmm. Um, and Justin and Jason, I know you interviewed him last podcast or two podcasts ago. Um, did you guys go into the how he automates that? We all? did. We didn't go into the nuts and bolts of it, okay. but essentially, yeah. um, he just explained that. He has uh, essentially sample bingo cards on the web for lots of key subjects, and he he farms that out to um, he he pays three buck eighteen cents or something like that for um, uh, like an outs- an outsourced person to write it up. He's cl- he's very clever, and he's done a, something very similar to Pete. He's used his software knowledge, and he built a small workflow system, and he has a. A small army, uh, you know, I don't know, it might be a dozen, it might be 50, I don't, yeah. I don't know. He just kind of uses a, a vague phrase, but he has a small army of um, of folks, of people, I think most of them are in the U.S., and I think most of them are in the, like the Midwest and such, and they, he offers a price, and they log in and do exactly what you said, where they design, you know, bingo cards um, based on a, a title that exists in his software. They can claim it. Yeah, by the so, way, you, you, you know that people in the Midwest live, che- live cheaply. If you ever watch HDTV and people go buy like a five-bedroom house for like $150,000, <laughs> like I can't believe this. You, you can't buy a parking space in L.A. for that much. It's un- yeah. <laughs> no wonder yeah. they can work for $3.18 for a card, right? Yeah. So, so yeah, Pete, I was wondering a couple things. One is... Um, if you're developing, if you're launching 12 books this month, how are you funding all of those? Because I suppose you've had to pay up front for the contractors. Right. And you're, how did you write? Had- what, we, what we've done, we have enough books now and enough history to know that even our worst books make us about $100 a month. And so when we create a book, we do it for two and a half times that. So for $250, we can create a book and then in two and a half months we can expect to have broken even on it on average and so you know for 12 books it's a little chunk of change but it's not a huge chunk of change it's a couple sure. grand and then in a couple months we'll have not only that couple grand coming back in but we'll have you know another 12 books and another 12 books from from the next month and the, and the next month after that so it, it's it's a small investment of a couple grand up front, but once the cash flow gets moving, there's really nothing stopping you. I mean, even if I I figured out that to be where I want to be, I'd need like 4,000 titles out. And even if I could produce, say, 10 titles a day, uh, and I I mean, even if I had the money to produce 10 titles a day, I don't have the manpower. That's Money's not really the the bottleneck. Yeah, sure. The cash cash flow is fine. Right. Finding finding quality writers and... 
and other exactly. aspects. Yeah, that's always the issue. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, that so I didn't realize the economics worked out like that because that's fascinating. Because mm-hmm. the the two hundred fifty dollars up front, you're right, is nothing, and that's you know uh, similar to what I I'll pay for certain types of websites. Um, like some content websites, but it's the hundred dollars a month that you get right away. That's the that's the huge difference between what you're doing and, and things I've done or I've seen done. How yeah. are you getting to that? How do you get to that hundred dollars a month so quickly? Is that because of Amazon's sort of marketplace, or are you getting that through, um, you know, through just through SEO that that there's not a lot of competition? Most of it actually initially is Amazon because. Normally, when we come out with a book, it has either zero competition or it has one book that's obviously subpar, that's just a strange book that's marginally related. So when we create a book, we know that people are searching for it and we know the volume, but we, we also know that there's nothing out there. So that the moment we hit the shelves, as it were, on Amazon, there, there are going to be X thousand people searching for that and finding us immediately. And um, part of what we do, and some people might think this is a little bit shady, but I, I think it's on the right side of ethical. Part of what we do to increase Amazon sales is we hire people on Odesk to review the book. And the way we do it is we say, um, A, if we're going to hire you, you have to be an established Amazon reviewer. And B, we're going to give you the book and you send us the review. And if the review is good, then post it. And if the re- review is not good, then don't post it. But we pay them either way to review. And normally, in general, what happens is that we start early. We, we, don't, we don't publish the book on Amazon until we've gotten a couple early reviews in. And generally, they're fine. They're four or five stars right off the bat. And that's fine. And then we post it. And when it when it's lower, when we start getting feedback that says this book is no good or this book doesn't make sense or it's too short or, or whatever it is, we actually redo the book. We do we at least partially redo the book so that we start getting the actual. So in other words, we use the feedback system that's supposed to be for customers as sort of an alpha test of our book. And then immediately when we have when we put that book out there, we have uh, we have strong reviews on it because we've pre-released it, if, if, if you will, to those reviewers. And reviews make a huge difference on Amazon. The, the, the thing here that I'm getting here is this is really, I mean, you are really specializing in, in, in a way of making money online, right? Which is, which is very interesting. And I think because you're specializing in that one thing, it's, it's following that classic advice, which is find something that works and then just amplify it, right? You're just focused on that. Um, and that's, I think that's slightly different to Rob, the way that you work, right? Which is you, you've got your fingers in lots of different pies. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, that's right. I have a lot of varied products. I mean, m- many of them are actually software, you know, they're not, uh, not eBooks like this. So there are, I think it's a little different process to get them developed. And then, yeah, my niches are all over the place from, from, uh, like power lineman jobs to small business invoicing to wedding websites. And I'm not, I'm not you know, I've had mixed emotions about my approach um, in terms of the the variation. I, I really like it because it, it is so diversified. And when the kind of the the recession hit uh, in you know August of two thousand eight or September, whenever it was, um, like .NET Invoice took a pretty big hit because I feel I felt like small business purchasing f- pulled back, but but all my business to consumer stuff stayed. 
And actually, as the recession has continued, .NET Invoice has recovered, and my I have a job website for power linemen that has hit its record months in the past few months. You know, which you would expect. And I'm actually thinking I want more job websites at this point. I think it's right. a pinnacle in our in our history. While some of my other business to consumer stuff has started to fall off. Um, and I think that's probably due to people being laid off and over long term, you know, spending is going down. So I, so it's really good in diversify, you know, that it's been able to diversify. Um, at the same time, yeah, I'm, I do have to learn, you know, quite a bit about a lot of different niches and, uh, it would be a, a lot more difficult for me. I, I don't even know how I would automate it to the extent, um, that Pete has done. And that's something that, you know, I'm, I'm just intrigued purely by the automation that he's put in place because it's, uh, that's something that, you know, I outsource a lot of, uh, of writing and, and virtual assistant stuff, but he's kind of taken it to another level. I'm even intrigued by his target of 40,000 books a month, which by my simple back of the envelope calculations is 4 million bucks a month. No, no, no. I, uh, it's, uh, what I, what I, my current goal for the entire catalog of our books is 4,000 books, not 40,000. Oh, 40, oh, okay. Right, right. So 4,000 books all making hundred dollars a month would be a pretty chunk of change. Yeah, that would be nice. Yeah. Now, how long do you think it's going to take to get there? 4,000 books? Yeah. It depends on how well the automation works, and I'm going to know what, uh, what a realistic average per month is going to be in probably three months or four months from now. But I'm guessing that I'll be able to push somewhere between 60 and 90 books out the door per month. So... It'll take a while to build up to 4,000 total books. And be, part of the reason, I'm, I'm not the only one doing this sort of business model, but I am the only one doing it and also creating decent books because there, there's at least one other one. And I'm, there's at least one other one who is even in the same sort of market with um, health publications. And I'm not going to mention their name because they're, I, I think they're doing something pretty bad. Basically, they're they're making books that are that are titled appropriately, but they have pretty much no content. They're, they're very thick books, but they're filled with, um, they're filled with spam. Essentially. They, they just copy web results and that sort of things. And literally without editing them, they're, they're essentially a scam. You buy them and, and there's nothing in them. But and, don't they, don't they uh, suffer from the bad review syndrome in Amazon and then people just don't buy it? Well, they do, but they also have, thousands and thousands of titles so any given title going bad doesn't matter to them All right so i think they're i think they're financially pretty successful i mean i'm sure it's not going to be a long-term thing because like you said you can't you can't continually screw customers over and expect to continue to exist right so i i think we're unique in that we're creating books that are legitimately valuable to people and and that creates a ceiling on how many books we can create i almost feel i almost feel strange saying this but jason what do you think (laughs) (laughs) you've been really quiet yeah yeah i was just uh, playing solitaire here i'm sorry (laughs) (laughs) um well question i have is where did you get the four thousand number from i i pulled it out of my hat okay I, i just thought it sounded good that does sound good i like that i was just wondering if you had done some like first like low-level analysis of demand and, and did like a spreadsheet and said, okay, here's an outside number we see based on, you know, categories of terms or something like that. But no, it was just sort of something you thought of, okay, 4,000 is a number. 
Yeah, I figure 4,000 books will be about $4 million in revenue a year, which I'm comfortable with. Yeah, yeah. I, I, could, I could probably live off that, especially in the Midwest. <laughs> probably, right. <laughs> so you, you wrote some software recently, like a, it's called like some goal mapping software. Yeah. yeah I now, does that have any relationship to, you know, when you pick a number like 4,000 as a goal, mm-hmm. um, is this something that you use? Does, that, does picking a goal like that play into your goal mapping software? Why don't you, you know, I'd be interested, first of all, just hearing about your goal mapping software, but also how it plays into what you're doing with your business. Okay, so a little background. Goal mapping is something that I wrote about on my blog, and I wrote a piece of software that's currently in alpha and has been for a while that basically allows you to create a flow chart from your current place, wherever you are, to wherever you want to be. So if I'm, if I'm here now and I've got, a, I've got a publishing company that has like 35 or 40 titles out and I want to get to the point where I have 4,000 titles, then I put, put the, the node where I have 40 titles out on the left side of the chart or at the top of the chart and I put the 4,000 titles on the other side of the chart and then I create nodes with arrows between them that, that represent the steps I need to take to get to where I want to be. And the cool thing about the software is that it doesn't just allow you to create the flowchart. It also keeps track of how uh, likely each step is to actually occur or for you to succeed at it. And then it tells you what your best path through your flowchart is. And it tells you the exact probability of success that you have. Now, is this a web, uh, web app or is this something that you download? Yeah, no, it's a web app. You can go to goalmapping.petermashad.com. And try it. Don't try it in Internet Explorer, though. I didn't yeah. bother covering that. I don't any. think I try anything in Internet Explorer. So. <laughs> yeah. I, I try not to, but I kind of have to, to you know, to make right. sense and stuff. But in any case, so yeah, I, I actually did use the goal mapping software for that, and I and I have a flowchart saved for it. But it's um, in terms of where it's actually going. I am currently in the process of trying to find a JavaScript developer to continue the development of it because. I think it, it could be something that's really interesting and useful to people, and it's it's okay right now, the alpha version, but you'll see right away that it, that it has serious polish issues, and it's definitely not ready for the prime time, and I'd like it to be, but I just don't have time to make it that, so. Um, now how long have you been working on this software? I built it in about a week a few months ago, and then I haven't touched it after that. But I have been collecting feedback on it, so I know where I want to go with it. Now, how, how do you... It looks you impressive, said, by the way. Yeah, it's, it's, oh, it's, very, it's very cool. Um, what, what are you using for the... Uh, just, uh, you know, to get a techie here for a second, what's your, what libraries are you using for the drag-and-drop and display stuff? Oh, jeez. Are you using jQuery or are you using something like Raphael for, like, um, you know, Canvas? No, I built it SVG before that. Concept? Before that stuff became, before all the cool kids started doing that stuff, I built it. This was this was nearer to the beginning of the year, and and actually, <laughs> I'm kind of embarrassed to say I don't remember what library I used because I went through I went through a phase at that time. It's probably jQuery because I I normally use jQuery. I try to use jQuery, but mm-hmm. I, I was going through a phase at that time of trying different things, and I may have and this may have been one of the applications where I tried something different. And so now you have me looking at the source like, geez, okay, well, I, don't, I don't want to get you off track, but <laughs> yeah. I'm just curious how, how was this software or has the development of the software or anything played into 
how you are thinking about growing your business? Well, the concept of it, definitely. I mean, I've been using this concept for a few years now when I, when I realized that I had that dumb plan to make $2 million before I was 25, that turned out to be completely untenable. And um, I started using the concept at that time, but I was using just a normal flowchart program. And so when I, yes, when I have goals now, I use this, I use this method. And now that I have this piece of software, I use this software, certainly. It's very, very, very useful. So, um, Justin, we should probably jump over to Rob before he hangs up on us. <laughs> well, Rob, Rob had some more questions for Pete, I think, so. Yeah, you know, I just, I'll, I'll make it quick. Um, there are kind of more detailed questions, but I was, I was curious, like, what, uh, what are the lengths of your books approximately and what, what's your pricing like? And do you do physical as well as, as PDFs? Kind of the logistics okay. of them. All right. The answer is most of our books are between 50 and 80,000 words, which I think is a pretty good length. Uh, some of them are as low as 30,000, but that's not that common. And we sell them in each book is each book doesn't get the same treatment. It really depends on the, on the market. We, we sell our books in physical format, uh, not hardback though just paperback and we sell them in PDF format via our websites, not from Amazon. So I, I saw your ebook, Rob, and you're selling it in PDF and EPUB, right? Yep. As well as paperback. Oh, oh and, and it's in paperback. Okay. So you're, yep. you're, you're doing kind of the same thing that I'm doing. So we have, we have most of our books on Kindle and in various other ebook marketplaces and we have them listed on, um, Amazon and the other big retailers like Barnes and Noble. And in theory, you could get it in a bookstore. You could, you could order it in a bookstore, but the, the, the volumes for each one of our books aren't sufficient to expect to just walk into any arbitrary bookstore and find a title there, although it's possible. Do you think what you're doing could work in a, a, another niche? Uh, I mean, cause your, you, your niche is essentially health, right? Do you think you could move that, that to another niche and do the same thing? Yeah, I do. I, we have titles that are in, um, like one thing we talked about last time is the statistics textbook that we've got. And that's, that's actually one of our biggest sellers also. And we're, we're developing, we're working on developing uh, calculus, how to the same practically cheating calculus handbook. And I, I think that that could be another big one for us. We have, we have a few other ones. We have crazy ones like, um, trying to think we have a book called recipes for dogs which, <laughs> which i thought was hilarious when we when we came across that keyword i was like yeah we're gonna make that book we just have to that's and, and it's not a bad seller it's people search for these things they want to make fancy food for their dogs so hey i'm gonna help them do it and there's there's one about how to become a game tester for example so we i mean we we branch out a little bit and we see what works so it's we're not strictly focused on health does this inspire you rob i mean are you thinking Oh, books, books. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, you know, because obviously, obviously Pete's become a publisher and he's, yeah. he's, you know, automating the process. And I, I don't know if becoming a publisher is something that would make me, you know, fulfilled um, right. personally, you know, so I don't, sure. uh, but I'm just trying to get, get a concept of, uh, uh, you know, more of what he's doing. Because I do think that this could be applied to other, either other book niches or other niches that are not books, you know. Yeah. Well, here's the thing. One thing, Rob, that I wanted to point out about books, and I think you've, you've brought it up 
in that article that you wrote called the software product myth and something right. that's really relevant to what to what I'm doing is that the the maintenance and support for books is trivial and that's one of the keys to the this business model is that with software you you have to have a specialist or you have to to do it yourself you have to actually maintain it and there's significant support but the maintenance and support for a book is um, maybe once a year you come out with a, a, a book an, another edition with minor corrections and the support is maybe teaching somebody how to download a PDF because they bought it and then they don't really know what to do with it and my receptionist does that I don't have to do anything my receptionist could could not fix a bug in in .NET invoicing, though. You know, one, right. of the, one of the things I've always thought about books, and maybe I'm slightly wrong, and just a jump on me if I am, but it's I always feel like even if everyone on the planet wrote a few books, it wouldn't essentially break the marketplace. Yeah, you know? no, I think you're right. I mean, I I think that we're that we're in um, enough we're we're in small enough markets that a little bit of competition will hurt. Like for example. I have a book called Literary Agents Online, which is a guide for authors to get literary agents. And, and the shtick is that we teach them how to, instead of doing, traditionally you send a, a physical letter to a literary agent and you have to research the literary agent, et cetera. But it's completely inefficient for the author. For, for the agents, it works out well. But for the author, it's, it's in a really arduous process that normally doesn't get you agented. So I wrote a book about, actually, it, mostly Steph, my, my wife, wrote a book about how to get get a literary agent using the internet. And it's it's a really good resource, but it's sold almost nothing. It, it makes nothing because it's such a saturated market, that specific huh. one. But the cool thing about it is that if I have 4,000 titles and one of them succumbs to some sort of stronger competition, well, it doesn't matter because then I still have 3,999 3, titles. Now, you guys both use a, a lot of uh, outsourcers, or you do a lot of outsourcing. How how do you each go about finding quality people? Huh. Once you start, Rob, you uh, Rob since, yeah, yeah, sure. Um, so I've gone through kind of an evolution of of finding good people. Um, I used to use Craigslist. Even even overseas, I would use uh, like Manila Craigslist for the Philippines, and I would, uh, you know, use you know Craigslist here in the U.S. and you can you can post to any area, and that has ceased working for me. There were people that were getting on there that are that have experience, have a resume, have a website, and they've obviously done work. Um, you know, in whatever I was looking for, it was often just assistant, virtual assistant type stuff or, or SEO help. So they weren't just out and out scammers, but I would hire them, start paying them for their work. And then after a few weeks or a few months would notice it would just trail off. And I had to really keep a tight, tight rein on them. Otherwise they would, I would essentially keep paying them without knowing, you know, what they were doing. So I, I felt like that was happening more often than not, so I kind of abandoned that approach. Um, what has worked the best for me recently? Elance is still a really solid marketplace. I know it's kind of the generic recommendation. Everyone says, go to Elance to find these people, but it, it really is a, a good marketplace. And then my kind of favorite from the past, maybe eight to 12 months, is Odesk. And it the, what I like about it is that there are a lot of reputable people on there. Um, the ratings 
it's just a one to five star rating. So it's really easy to read. And once you hire someone and they're working, it actually, they run a screen capture tool that captures their screen every six or seven minutes and on a random interval. And it says how many cl mouse clicks and keyboard clicks they're making during that time. So mm -hmm. I can then flip through my, you know, out my people who are working for me, I can flip through their logs and um, see really what they're doing and make sure they're on task. Now, obviously, what I'm talking about are these are people working hourly for me on tasks that I that are hard to quantify, right? If, if I were to outsource a book like Pete's doing, which, you know, I've, I've done that kind of stuff in the past um, with reports and such, then it's fairly easy. You basically just assign it to them and you guys, you know, you agree, hey, you're going to get 50 bucks or 250 bucks for this thing. And then when it comes back, it's just up to you to do the quality uh, guideline. But I'm talking more about about hourly outsourcing. Yes, what Rob said. Uh, actually, <laughs> that's exactly what I was going to say. I was going to say, you know, to be honest, I've gotten most of my people lately from Odesk. And I was going to explain the hourly thing and everything. So, yeah, Odesk. So, <laughs> Odesk started as a, it was for programmers, but it's expanded beyond that to... All kind of That's different. Right. Yes. yes. Odesk yeah. seems a little bit offensive to me. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm offended by it too, but it works. <laughs> it's well, like, I mean, just, wait, the idea, well, just the idea of, I don't know, coding for my boss and like oh, the big having the screen, thing. you know, the big brother and looking at my screen and all that kind of stuff. That's just, mm. especially because, you know, sometimes um, I may sit down for 10 minutes thinking about something and then all of a sudden have a real burst of inspiration. So they just see no activity for 10 minutes while I'm thinking. You know? Right. You're right. And in, in fact, I have a I have a woman who basically checks all my email all the time for all the all the various sites and handles most of the customer service stuff. And she's a she's a, a nurse in the Philippines, and she's hourly. And I don't care what she does. Like I I often see her pull up arbitrary you know Facebook or, or whatever, and I don't care. I think it, I think it's a matter of just being a, a boss that has a, enough perspective to know not to shake someone's tree if they're doing a good work, not to yeah, not I, to micromanage them. I agree. That's a big part of it. I have someone I've seen solitaire come up on their screen before, but they're <laughs> super they're super productive. I mean, I'm not going to bother them. I think it's like you know I used to manage people at the city of Pasadena, and it was like the people who are really good, man. You don't you just let them do what they're going to do because they always come through and. Yeah. Other ones you can tell pretty quickly. What it does, it makes it a lot easier to tell the people who you should essentially weed out or at least talk to about. Completely. And that's one thing that I wanted to mention about Odesk. It's not all flowers. It's um, it's pretty difficult to find people still even on Odesk who do good work. And it's it's important that you vet them and watch them initially to make sure that you've got a good fit. And it's it's very possible to find good people and good fits, but it's, I want to say maybe somewhere between 20, 10 and 20% of the people that I initially hire for something work out, even on, even on Odesk, which I think is a good resource. So, wow. How do you, well, how do you, okay. What's your first filter? How do you pick the people that you're going to attempt to hire to do something? It really depends on what I'm hiring them to do, but generally I have them do a portfolio. I want to see their stuff. Like um, somebody, for example, we just, we just opened to manuscript submissions from the outside so that we needed a public facing website that, that looked decent. And so I hired a um, WordPress person to develop a theme based on a design that I came up with. And the first thing I did was 
I put it, I put it in the job description. I said, listen, I'm, I'm going to look at the code and it needs to be good code, semantic code. If you don't know what semantic code means, then don't apply for the job. So that was the first round, just making a job description that, that let people know that I was serious. And then the next round was looking at people's portfolio and, and deciding whether they were even in the running. And then actually what I had to do after that was I narrowed it down to about 10 different contractors who were potentials. And I asked them basically difficult web development questions, five, like I think five questions. And I got maybe three people who I would have hired and I, I chose the one who had the most feedback and I let the other ones know that I'd keep them in mind for future projects. But um, you just really have to vet them, vet them a lot. And, 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 the and then of that one person that you actually hire, you say only 10 to 20% of those end up working out in the <clears> end. No, actually the person that I hired for that worked out pretty well. The stuff that doesn't work out so well is when, uh, for example, researchers are kind of difficult to find because what, what a lot of researchers will do, basically a, a book like ours takes maybe 20 or 30 hours, legitimate hours to, to find all that information, to put it together so that a, a writer can write a decent book. And a lot of the time what will happen is we'll hire a researcher to create this document and we'll get back a Word document with a list of identical to the top 10 Google results, for example. And so those people get canned in short order. But I guess what I meant was the people who do that sort of work are a little harder to, to, um, to weed out because there's no portfolio. You can't, there, no one has a research portfolio, but with the creative stuff, you can, you can vet them a little harder by looking at what they've done. Um, Ron, so how does your sort of hiring and filtering process compare to Pete's? Yeah, I, I, it's it's very similar. Um, I think I think Pete brought up a good point that that when you're dealing with something that you can build a portfolio of, such as uh, if you build websites, if you're a designer, if you're even if you're a coder. You know, since I'm a developer, I can say send me source code and right. and hope hopefully believe that they actually wrote it. You know, um, <laughs> but there there are things you can look at like that it's the harder the harder people to vet i've never hired a researcher but i've hired a lot of virtual assistants and those are the people that are that are hard to vet you kind of have to go from my experience based on ratings um on odesk hours worked you know how much money they've generated kind of just go by word of mouth so to speak what other people have said about them yeah. and then that's when the odesk kind of screen capture really helps you for the first few weeks to just check up on them you know and and that tells you because without that you don't really know if they're doing a good job because I don't know I don't I don't check up on tier one email support that they handle for me I don't tend to check everything they're doing. Well, how how many of the people you end up hiring work out ultimately? Well, there's kind of a short term and a long term answer to that because short term I've gotten I've gotten a lot better at vetting people and I would say um maybe over the past year I've probably had a 50-50 ratio. So, you know, one out of two people I've hired have worked out and stuck around. Long term it's a different story because you you just have this attrition where someone um you know like Pete said one of his folks is a nurse uh my you know, a lot of my virtual assistants are in they have you know bachelors of English and they do something during the day and so they might get married or move or so there's kind of this attrition so they work they work out but then after a year or two they have to move on um so i guess over that 
you know, long term, the answer might be different. But and that's probably, I guess that's probably the same in the economy at large. You know, people yeah. get jobs that long, but right. just in terms of people who, after a few days or a week or two, you're like, okay, this person is. is oh good. yeah, yep, yeah. I've been hitting a pretty good, pretty good record. And I don't know if it's just a luck streak or not, but uh, <laughs> yeah, these days, these days, I, I think. What yeah, would you say your percentage is? About 50-50 right now. 50-50? Okay. Yeah. That's really good because, yeah. uh, and, and, and Pete, is yours similar to that? Is it 50-50, do you think? Yeah, short term. I, I was just going to say that I have completely the same experience. Even even when you find somebody, sometimes they, like you said, attrition. They they go away after a few right. months or a year. So. One, one last question I'd like to ask you guys about the outsourcing is what percentage of the people you work with are, say, native English speakers versus um, you know foreigners who you might have some difficulty communicating with? So I actually use um, several VAs slash editors here in the States and in Canada. And so obviously those are all, those are native English speakers. And then I have um, someone, well, I have a couple people in the Philippines and I, I would say that they are, na- they're, there's kind of fluent versus native, you know, and, right. and, and they are fluent. Like their English is like Justin's fluent, but he's not. <laughs> no. yeah. I wouldn't say that, <laughs> but uh, no, no, they are, they are fluent. I wouldn't say they're native, you know, okay. if that makes sense. Right. They, sure. I sure. think. I don't. I don't even know if if English is. I think English is the second language, or it might be the national language of the Philippines. Anyone know? Hmm. Who, who, I think Google? it's. No. I think it's both. Actually. Yeah. So so they they they're top notch, and they're not writing for me at this point. But uh, I right. would have them do short writing stuff, and then but you know then I have programmers I work with and designers, and kind of that other area where you don't necessarily need someone to be fluent in English, you know. Right. And I yeah, have my- had some some minor, uh, I mean, over the years, I've worked with some of these guys for two, two and a half years, um, specifically some designers that I have, and there have been miscommunications, but as you know, what's nice is I don't have tight deadlines. And so I ask them, Hey, you know, you didn't understand this part. They redo it. And, um, it, you know, that's the benefit of, of having someone having a relationship with someone, um, that they will fix it basically. Okay. Mm -hmm. I've, um, I'd quite like to, to uh, change the, the topic if you guys didn't mind. Sure. Um, so one of the things we were talking to Patrick McKenzie, uh, we, we had a great, uh, interview with Patrick McKenzie. And one of the things he said was, um, and this really kind of resonated with me and sent me on a path. And that's what I want to ask you about. Um, he, he said at one point, if you want to create a business, just think of a process that people do in Excel that could be done better. Right. <laughs> you know, and just, just think of any, anything like that. There's so many different businesses you could do. And that kind of set me off thinking and it made me think of something and I'm now in this stage that I, I think I'm going to term the madness. It's like when you have this idea that you can't stop thinking about and you, it's just overwhelming your every thought. That's a great name for it. <laughs> I knew exactly what you meant as soon as you said it. <laughs> yeah, the, the madness, right? It's right. like 28 days later. It's like, well, and, and that's what I wanted to throw out there. It's like, it's a great <laughs> movie, by the way. I love that movie. <laughs> Ravenous like, entrepreneurial zombies. Yes. Yeah. Like, I just wanted to know, do you guys know that and what kind I of experience? I still Hacker News front page. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> mm. Yeah. So, uh, Rob, have you ever had the madness? Oh, absolutely. I've actually, I've had it so often I've turned it into my <laughs> own personal process. I literally yeah. have, I have to stop myself because what I'll do, I think, I, I, well, most of you guys will probably agree, but what, what I do when I get the madness or what I used to do is I would just sit and research and type, you know, into Google AdWords and try to figure out, uh, 
you know, what, what the demand is. And I think about it and then I go buy a domain name and then I'd, st- I mean, I would just start moving on it really quickly. And then a day later or two days later, I'd be thinking and then like, wow, that's a terrible idea. <laughs> it was, it was overwhelming. So I, yeah. I forced myself to stop and realize no one's going to steal the idea in the next 48, 72 hours. I tender, I make a bunch of notes, I write it down and then I let it incubate. Um, and I do, you know, I have a notebook I keep of all my thoughts and such. And I do have a bunch of ideas from the last, say, year that that I've gone through this this process with. And some of them I go back to still and I think, oh, you know what? I, I want to build that. But either something else has taken precedent or um, or it turns out it just, you know, it wasn't a good idea. Where, where this used to really affect me badly was with when I used to be a singer and, and a songwriter because this, you get the same madness about a song. Absolutely. So essentially, it's like when you when you find a hook, you just can't stop thinking about it. You can't stop thinking about where's that hook going to go? How am I going to turn this into a song? Yep. And because you write so many more songs than you do think of businesses, you get the madness more often. That's right. Yeah, I, I used to, I was a songwriter. I was in a couple bands as well. And I would, I would have a mini tape recorder with me at all times. I had it in my car. I had it at work. And I would go into the bathroom just to sing the hook to make sure I wasn't going to forget it. I was always scared, you know, I was going to lose that magical line, the lyrical, lyrical note or the, mil- or I should say the melodic note. Hmm. So I'm sure that Jason ha- has, has the madness about soccer formations. <laughs> yeah. Well, frankly, I'm just a little bummed out because up to this point, I thought I was sort of winning the, the tech beam coining, um, race. Right. Yeah, I, mean, I, think, I, had, I think Justin just beat you. He did. I, you know, I, I was feeling pretty good about Lux Service Area and Miracle Function, and there's a couple others I'm kind of blanking on. But the madness, especially the following up with some kind of subtitle about zombie entrepreneurs, ravenous zombie entrepreneurs. Yeah, <laughs> like, you can have that. That's a good one. That's a good one. Yeah, like I said, subtitle by Pete Michaud. <laughs> oh, that's great. Um, yeah, that's pretty much all I have to say. I, I, I have the same experiences, Rob, with having to make the madness into a process except for that i wouldn't go to adwords i'd just have an idea pop into my head and then i'd start coding it and a day later through you know 16 hours of coding i'd be like no this is dumb never mind yeah never mind about this now actually part of my process now is kind of writing down an elevator pitch and maybe a couple paragraphs about it and then sending it to people that i that are really smart that i trust so they can tell me that i'm an idiot okay okay so i, I got had something that with email good yeah, yeah, I, I got your email. Yeah, I, get, I actually email pod dot biz dot biz. <laughs> that was good. Uh, I usually get a couple emails like that a week, just through my blog from often from people I don't know. Oh, right. That are, that are like a, a, a thoughts and ideas. Yeah, I'd say two to three a week. Of, okay, guys. Of, for an opinion. I, I got an I got I got something I want to throw out there based on this. Okay, go on. So I talked to Justin about this offline. I can't remember he what his um, thoughts were on it, how, how good of an IED I thought it was. But so how about you, if you had something in your blog where at the end of a, a blog post, it, you, it would list, you know, three to five potential blog posts you're thinking about writing, like sort of the um, mm. candidate titles. Mm-hmm. And people could put like a little like or a thumbs up or a thumbs down. Like I, that would be interesting. I, you should write about that. I'd love to read that. Right. That's a good idea. I like, I like it. it. I think it'd make a great WordPress. Yeah. WordPress plugin, but I don't, I don't, I wouldn't pay for it. Yeah. Well, yeah, I wouldn't pay for it. Yeah. Well, here's what I'm thinking about. It's kind of like a minimum viable product. That idea of like, okay, you, you, you come up with an idea, you throw a landing page out there and you see what kind of demand there is. Mm-hmm. And if you have a bunch of ideas for blog posts, rather than spending however many hours it's going to take writing and editing something out, you, you might, 
at the end of some blog post, you might get 30 or 50 or a couple hundred votes and you're like, wow, these, this one or these two, everyone's really excited about, but nobody cares about this other one. So at least you know where to focus your efforts. Yeah. You should, you should have that feeding into Pete's system so that it can automatically write the books <laughs> for you. Yeah. Yeah, or, yeah. The blog posts, right? Yeah. No, actually, so, I think that's a great idea because I have, whenever I'm blogging, I have lots and lots of potential titles that I, that I want to go into and I don't really know where, where people are with it. And the other thing that, that strikes me as a positive side effect about that is that in order for people to vote on something, it has to have a solid title. So it forces yeah. you to think about a clear title that people will understand right away. Exactly. Like and I was thinking, one of the reasons I was, it made me think of it, I was lying in bed at like in night and I couldn't fall asleep and I had all these ideas of things I wanted to write. And then I thought, you know what? One of the ways that I want to um, market App Ignite is by creating apps that might be really interesting or useful and that may be free like this, but that'll have it generated by App Ignite sort mm -hmm. of um, marker on there somewhere. You can so do that I, with WordPress. Yeah. So we could do that. It'd be like a little line of JavaScript that you could include or a WordPress plugin or something. It would say generated by App Ignite. And if it, if it spread around the web, because it would, you know, because people were using it on their blogs, it would have, if they went and they started using it and they set it up the system and it would be like on the actual system where you're entering in your titles or whatever, it could um, say generated by App Ignite or something. So anyway, it's just, it was just an idea for something like that. So um, yeah, I, I think there's sort of this, this, this need for sort of a peer review process, which like you said, Rob, there's already, you already give sort of a, a need, like, you know, like Jesse said that Patrick McKenzie says, well, look, look in at what people are using Excel for. Mm -hmm. And you got business ideas. Well, look at what people are using email for, and you may right. have another set of businesses. So if people are emailing, you know, Rob, you're getting a bunch of emails about how's this business idea. That might be a whole nother <laughs> concept. Yeah, there. Well, there's a website called conceptfeedback.com, but it might be more website reviews. But I think people also comment on kind of the business uh, business background of it, you know, or the business potential of it in their opinion. And right. then forums obviously are used for that a lot, like businesses, software forums, and stuff. Right. I think the main difficulty with that is the trust factor. I, I don't just I don't just throw out my ideas to anybody. I have a couple people that I know are really smart, and if there's a problem with it, then they're probably going to be able to tell me what it is. I'm not sure it, it would it it could be valuable, but what you'd have to do is you would have to. It's fundamentally important that you would have to attract the right experts so that they could give meaningful feedback. And the question is, how do you how do you do that? Because the experts are going to occasionally need feedback, but really they're going to know that they're creating more value than most anyone else. So how do you create value for them? Right, right. Oh, by the way, the name for the uh, the post title thing, I was something like demand post. This is for, I'm going to ask both of you guys this uh, independently, starting with Rob. Um, Rob, of your entrepreneurial endeavors of late, What's your new thing, your new big learning that's happened within the last couple of weeks that you're kind of thinking about at the moment? Ooh, that's a good question. Well, Rob just got back from the Business of Software conference, right? Yeah. So got a whole lot of ideas just from that alone, I would think. Yeah. Well, what, what's interesting is the things I've been learning lately have been less dealing with my actual products and more dealing with kind of my blog and book and speaking engagements. Almost like the personal brand type stuff. So I like I learned more from business of software about how to do a presentation than I learned of specific techniques to implement on my products, if that makes sense. Like a lot of the presentations were really entertaining, very funny, but they didn't give you specific techniques to do, you know, to, to implement. 
um, that was actually one thing I did is I, I gave like, here's step by step something I've done, the results that I saw, other people did the same thing. And, you know, ta-da, there you go. And I got mixed reviews about that. People were like, eh, you know, it doesn't apply to me. I disagree with you. Like, since I gave concrete stuff, there was more to disagree with and debate about. Mm. Um, so, so if you could kind of um, encapsulate what was different about the way that guys like Peldy and, and these other guys presented, what would be the key difference? Yeah, well, they, they did a great job of entertaining. They were very funny. They had lots of humor. Uh, and they kind of told a story, but it was a story that was like, here's been the story of my company. Here's what I did. Be remarkable. You know, scratch your own itch. I mean, they didn't use specific, but it was kind of the, the, the more high level discussion. Seth Godin was there. He spoke. And you can imagine, you know, if you've read his books, you know, the kind of stuff he said, which is, um, if it can be, he, one thing he said, if it can be written down, it can be outsourced or it should be outsourced. And <laughs> that kind of got a lot of people in a huff, you know, you're speaking to developers. <laughs> Um, but so it was that kind of stuff. It was very motivational, very interesting, but it was much less practical, I'll say. You know what I'm saying? And so, but, but it really made the conference. I mean, there was a lot of energy when, when those people were speaking. And I would say mine was some people came afterwards and said, that was fantastic. Like, I, you know, it really applies to me. But then other people were like, yeah, it was kind of boring. And it, <laughs> and it, you know, and they were being honest. They're developers, right? Uh, developer entrepreneurs. They're, they're honest. always honest. Yeah. But, but so that was good for me to learn though. It was like, well, I think I could still provide value. I just need to be more entertaining. You know, I need to figure out a way to, to go against my nature and actually be funny for it's once. a very personal journey i mean it's, yeah. it's that the whole personal brand at like you're somehow allowing yourself it, you have to give acceptance to yourself to be a little to kind of move outside of your box as it were yeah. does that make any sense yeah it does yeah no it completely makes sense in fact I, it, it's funny rob we're kind of going through the same thing at the same time and what you said really rang true to me justin because it, being able to brand yourself and communicate that brand to others is really an exercise in deeply understanding yourself first and sort of becoming the best version of yourself instead of a wishy-washy hodgepodge of advice and maybe some core of you somewhere. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. So, well, I think um, a, a, a one lesson to learn from, say, um, Derek Sivers is that he uses stories to communicate ideas mm -hmm. very well. And stories are much more interesting than just a list of like, here are 10 ways to do X, Y, and Z. I mean, those might be useful, but it's hard, they're harder to remember and they're just not as interesting. But when you hear like stories from entrepreneurs or technologists and they say, well, let me tell you the story of how this happened. Mm -hmm. You tend to remember stories. I mean, there's something about the human mind that the connections between a series of events, they stick in your, in your brain and then you remember why what they did worked for them. Yeah, um, I think you're completely right. But one thing I want to throw out, especially for this type of audience where you're going to have a lot of developers and engineers, I think it's split. I think some people are normal human beings and that they like stories and they, and they like sort of the context that stories provide the information. And some people have no patience for it at all. And they'll tell you that you're a fluffy writer if you if you do anything but deviate from the how-to list. And I think that I've learned to, I guess what I do most of the time is ignore those people because that's not really who I'm talking to. <laughs> that's right. the I think Asperger's people, right? <laughs> the Asperger's people, yeah. I mean, and, and there's a higher proportion of those people than uh, in our population than in the general population. So I think 
um, maybe sometimes if if you're speaking and somebody tells you that it, that it wasn't you know there wasn't enough information or vice versa, you can kind of take it with a grain of salt is what I'm saying because I don't know especially when I write on the blog about half the people think I'm awesome and about half the people think I'm an idiot so I'm just you know I, I, think, I write uh, for home writing. Steve Yegi, I don't know if you guys know who he is. He's yeah. a yeah. He he wrote a hilarious uh, article. I don't know, maybe this is a month or two ago about and one of the things he talked about in it was how the most liked thing that you'll ever see on Reddit is liked by sixty six percent of the people. Like yeah. that's a home run. <laughs> so if you're up into the sixties, that's that's you know you're doing pretty pretty well. Right. So I guess I guess the point then is Rob, when somebody comes up to you, when when the audience comes up to you afterward and tells you that it was either good or bad, um, that one strategy is to try to make more of those people say it was good, and the other strategy is to find an audience where they already think it's good. Right. So, so um, I think let's ask the same question to Pete. Um, during your last few weeks of entrepreneurialism, um, has any new process or any new thing caught your attention and and kind of got your focus? Well, one thing that we're trying to branch into, first of all, there's an actual company now, whereas before it was just my wife and I doing whatever we were doing. Now there's a company, it's called Kenrose Media. And like I said, we open to public manuscript submissions and proposal submissions. So I'm thinking that um, it's sort of a, a different, it's a different take on automating the writing process because what we've been doing is hiring writers to write specific things that we give them. But if we can get a decent flow of manuscripts from people that are marketable, then that's sort of an autom automation in and of itself. If that makes sense. So we, like I said, we opened this public facing site and um, this KenroseMedia.com and you can submit your manuscript and I'm I'm hoping I don't think it'll do anything right now, but I'm hoping that when we have more titles and we get more um, more publicity from, I'm planning to write a few posts targeted at writers and and publishers and agents on the Kenrose Media blog, and I'm hoping that that kind of creates a a different flow of of automated writing if you want so that's what i've been focusing on for the last few weeks at least just just sort of a different take on automation so i'm, I'm still focused on automation but i'm trying what's well, your sort of like, like is there any lessons or insights from that that stuff that you're working on i think the meta lesson is that even if something does work you should always have your eye open for something else that works as well because like rob said if you if you are diversified then you'll be ready for when something goes wrong in one market and I'll be ready for when the the Philippines is no longer a is no longer a viable place to find highly trained professionals to do the things I need them to do because I'll have people from all over the world submitting manuscripts for example you know that's my pipe dream anyway but my point is that don't don't get comfortable even if something is working keep doing that and amplify it but have your eye open for other ways to do the same thing or other similar things to do. Interesting. Well, it, it reminds me, I'll just bring up a little trading analogy, uh, which is that when people have these trading strategies that work, you'll see these mm -hmm. traders and they'll make a ton of money. And the ones that 
the great traders, the ones that are able to make money in all kind of markets, whether it's a bear market or bull market, or whether they're trading stocks or futures or whatever, is the ones that do exactly what Pete just said, which is that, yeah, they figured out a trick that's going to work, right? And they figure out how they can optimize it and amplify it and improve the risk reward of it. But they're always playing and experimenting with other strategies. And the reason I, the reason I bring up the, the trading analogies is a trading strategy is just a very pure quantitative animal as opposed to these startup ideas which are fairly complex they're not it's not just like well i do x y and z if you know these five conditions are true Mm -hmm. and i think that's important it's like in it there's some it's a sort of um it's an important uh sort of what's the word i want to use i guess like a a, a trade-off a ratio of what they what you would refer to as exploration versus exploitation Mm -hmm. which is used in machine learning Mm -hmm. which is What's your, what's the optimal ratio of explore versus exploit? And as it turns out, I think like as a sort of heuristic in, you want to do about 80% exploit and 20% explore for a, for a learning agent. And a lot of people, what they'll end up doing is they'll find something that works and they just do it and do it and do it until it stops and they're kind of screwed. Right. Right. And. But if all you do is explore and explore and look around and try out new ideas and you never lock in anything and really just try and squeeze it and really and really get as much as you can out of it, then, um, you know, you're kind of uh, you're never going to find anything. You're never going to get any escape velocity. So you, you have to sort of almost force yourself into some kind of a, a ratio like that. And it sounds like that's exactly what you're doing, Pete. Yeah. And actually, I think that ratio is about right. 80, 20, except with the caveat that I would focus on exploiting initially until you get some small traction. So it's like you said, you don't want to get stuck constantly exploring and never actually exploiting. So um, initially find something and exploit it. And then once it, once it's kind of stable and you understand it, then 20% sounds good too. Exactly. Exactly. Um, you know, Justin's pinging me about uh, or pinging us about uh, you guys bringing up some of your own topics. But actually, I want to ask one question, Justin, mm-hmm. first. Um, um, so, uh, Rob, you know, you, so I want to ask you about your podcast and kind of and your blogging efforts and kind of how that's playing into sort of this idea of brand building. So I guess the first question is, you know, what why are you doing the podcast or, and, and, and sort of what is your ultimate goal with it? I think it was well. I know that that it we had two primary goals when Mike and I um, started it, and one, the first one was to like extend my reach into a group of people who may not read blogs but who listen to audio, right? So just to right. to get access to a new audience, and the second thing was to kind of. It's going to sound so cheesy. It's not marketing speak, but it's to deepen engagement. It's to just engage <laughs> with people more. Because when you read right. something on a page, and you know when this finally hit me was when I heard the first episode of the Stack Overflow podcast. Because mm-hmm. I've been reading Joel and Jeff for years. I mean, five plus years. Um, well, Joel since 2001, but Jeff since he started blogging in 2005. And once I heard the podcast, I suddenly understood the personalities, their voices, you know, it changes the, the way you think about the person. And so right. um, I realized on that very day that like, wow, I have to start a podcast here in the next, you know, I, what did it take me maybe a year after they started uh, right. to do it? So that, those were the goals. And the ultimate goal, I'm not, I'm not sure. I don't even know what the ultimate goal of my blog is. You know, it's like, what's the, <laughs> right. what's the end game? I, 
I don't know. I just, I do it because I really enjoy the writing and I enjoy putting out thoughts and I feel like I have enough original thought that, that I'm not just being an echo chamber. You know, if I was right. being an echo chamber, I would shut it down. But, um, so I just enjoy interacting with, with the people. Do you think that the, I mean, because you have what about five, six thousand subscribe RSS subscribers to your blog? Is that yeah, that like right? sixty five hundred? Yeah. Okay, which is just pretty, pretty decent number. And I'm just wondering, with your podcast, how does that compare? How does a podcast compare to your blog in terms of I don't know, bringing people awareness to the kind of stuff you're doing and working on, or and, and all that. Did we lose him? Sorry. No, I, I muted myself. I apologize. Oh, they just spaced, <laughs> I thought you just spaced out. Yeah. <laughs> He's playing solitaire. <laughs> I, ran, I ran to the bathroom real quick. No, the, I think the best way to look at it or the easiest way to look at it for me is through RSS subscribers because that's kind of the metric I've always used for to, you know one metric of success for my blog. Um, because like monthly visitors or just monthly kind of hits, I mean, I think you guys have experienced it. It with like monthly or an episode download, it doesn't have so much meaning because it peaks and then it goes away. And unless right. you retain them as like quote unquote subscribers, then it you know it has uh, a lot less of a of meaning. So, so with my blog, with with my RSS and email subscribers, yeah, it's like over seven thousand. And from what I've heard from a couple other folks who do, who blog, who have successful blogs, and reasonably successful podcast is the podcast listenership winds up being around 10% between 10 and 15% um, of, of your blog, you know, mm -hmm. readership. So ours is more than that. And I don't know, I think we're around a thousand RSS subscribers right now. Um, it does go up and down, but uh, it's funny, even I like, we've never said that publicly because that number just doesn't sound like, like a lot. Right, it it just sounds like a tiny amount of people, but frankly, we get more, like five times more questions and comments per subscriber than than I do on my blog, and that comes back to the engagement of it. Like mm -hmm. it's it's harder to find listeners or you know subscribers, but it, it's so much more of a of a deeper relationship. So it's worth it to you. Yeah, it definitely has been. Mm -hmm. Um, I think it was a Justin I have discovered. I mean, I've never really blogged before at all. So, and I'm just starting to get myself to do it now. But one thing we've noticed is that the, our listeners seem to be really engaged to the podcast. And we get a, we, almost all of the feedback has been extremely positive, which is, which is great. You know, you, you're not, you don't get a lot of trolling or flaming and stuff. I mean, and I think part of that has to do with, with you said people, kind of can engage with you more. They feel like, okay, this is a human being mm. and they can hear that we're not taking ourselves too seriously. And, you know, we might have a point of view or we might say some things that they look at their head. They may themselves disagree with or be rolling their eyes, but they're like, oh, you know, okay, I know these guys, right? <laughs> I mean, when you, when you're talking with your friends, they're going to be saying things all the time that you disagree with, but you know, go, oh, that guy's an ass. You should <laughs> Yeah, you I mean, know, there's I definitely times guy. when I listen to No Agenda and Adam Curry or John Dvorak will say something, I'll be like, God, did you just say that? But I still love them. I still think they're brilliant. So, yeah. yeah. Which is different from a blog because when people say things that you disagree with, especially if they're at all emotional for you or political or any of those types of things, I mean, it's easy to just become angry with them and to say, I hate that guy. I just think text is a really bad medium to communicate in. I mean, when you text by instant message, it's so easy to pick up the wrong vibe. That's why you have to put lots of smileys in there, right? 
<laughs> you know, or even just by emails. If you do, if you do a short email, I mean, it just kind of seems sort of uncaring, right? Yeah, it's, it's, it's the same thing. So, um, Pete, in terms of your blogging, because um, it seems like you 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 are not as consistent. Like you you do it and then you back off and then you do it. This big look. Just I was kind of reading through your blog this morning just to kind of catch up on what you've been thinking about. Mm-hmm. Um, what's sort of your strategy for blogging and and then what's I mean, how has it played into what you're doing with your entrepreneurial efforts? A lot of what I've been doing has come directly from the blog. For example, as you know, I'm interested in game mechanics in business, which is what my achievement porn essay was pretty much all about. Right. And so directly from that, I got I got in contact with a a woman named Cynthia Salbato that's working in Oregon to create a company called Planet U. And she is building a platform that incentivizes individuals to do good things for themselves that are also good for the community. And the, and the business model is to get, for example, to get people to in, improve their health, right? And then in, in that area, in the literally the geographic area, people could get a, a break on their health insurance, for example, because that area has now become um, less of a risk for insurance companies. And, and that's just one example. But um, that came that came to me through the blog. Um, another thing is somebody, a, a woman that you may have heard of, named um, Suzanne She. She started wearedrobe.com and it sold to like.com. And now she's working on something called Lollyhop, which is sort of like mint.com for your health. And the idea is that you keep track of the stuff you eat and the amount of exercise you're doing. And it, it's social, so it incentivizes you to, to do better and tells you what you could be doing better. And that, and that sort of thing. So I'm, I'm, really, I'm really interested in that. And all of that came via my blog because that's just sort of the the stuff that I write about and in terms of strategy I've just I've been too ensconced in in automating everything and getting it underway to be able to commit to gosh how long does each essay take it takes it takes a couple days per essay to write like a, a good 8 or 16 hours to write to write a decent essay wow and so that's a lot of work that's a lot of time does it take you that much time yeah i don't spend that much anymore when i first mm-hmm. when i started my blog i definitely did um i think now i'm typically between the 1 and maybe 3 gosh maybe as i might have spent 4 on my on a recent long one but it's like one to three hours. So when I when I put ten minutes into it, I'm not really. That's that not much enough. Care. Yeah. <laughs> well, the, the, there's an interesting contrast between blogging and podcasting. I've felt like podcasting is a lot easier. Like, I, and I don't mean to to make it. Yeah, I don't mean to make it sound. It, it's just easier to if it's easier to talk to have a conversation, record it, and get it out. Easier to maintain. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. I think in the long term, I think blogging is more of a. It's a lonely you know, kind of a lonely uh, discipline and without some feedback or some motivation, it's really tough to put, to put all the time into getting the written word out. Mm-hmm. So it's hard to, it's a, yeah, you're right. Pod, I think a podcast is easier to sustain, especially yeah. if 
well, I think it's easier if you have someone to do it with, like most things. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. And for Justin, I mean, Justin's the audio guy, right? So he does the editing and that kind of stuff, which he, he enjoys to some extent and is good at and is efficient at. So I don't have to worry about it. And then I can sort of do my thing, which is inviting guests and, um, you know, you know, coordinate with them and trying to, and writing up descriptions and just the other, the other stuff, but I'm talking and just talking, right. Which is something I can do all damn day, <laughs> but getting myself to write. So I'm, I've been trying to put the finishing touches on my first post and it's just painful. I feel like I'm back in college where I have an essay or a paper hanging over my head. I'm like, God, this is brutal. They will just from Jason, just remember creativitis, just put something yeah. out there. Yeah, exactly. So I'm going to, I'm going to put it out. Um, I'm going to put the finishing touches on today. And, you know, I was talking with my wife about it. Um, and she was a little, uh, she was wondering, you know, she's like, well, why are you spending so much time on this? Maybe it's not worth it, you know? And I felt like, well, look, I mean, the purpose is that I'm, I'm trying to, I want to, it's not, I'm not one of those people like, oh, I have to write about this stuff to get my ideas out. Cause I have the podcast for that. I can just say any random thing I'm thinking about, which I tend to do. <laughs> and, but, in order to um, build awareness of, say, App Ignite, I think I can do that an order of magnitude greater um, just with a with a blog, just because just for the same reason that um, that Rob gave, which is that it's usually ten to one. You got ten times more readers than you're going to have um, blog list or, or podcast listeners, and especially if you can get something that can make it to the front page of Hacker News, right? You can get right. a ton of hits. So it's worth me really, and it's, it's not worth blogging just to write a paragraph like blah, blah, blah. This is what I think about something. I need to write something that's really going to ha- be an interesting idea and really something that people are going to want to read and vote up. Otherwise, it's just why waste of time? So that's why it definitely, at least for me, it's going to take a little bit of time to reach effort. And well, uh, let me say this, Jason. I think there's, I think there are a few different types of posts. When, you, when you're writing a blog, I want to focus on two. One of them is that sort of super interesting blockbuster post that you mentioned. But right. I don't think you can ignore the importance of, I, I guess in blog lingo, they call it pillar posts, which, mm-hmm. which is just, it's good information, but it's not unique. And it's not particularly insightful or headline worthy, but it forms, it forms a, a bedrock of the stuff that you, you talk about. And you can refer back to it and... Um, Google gives you juice for having talked about it, and um, I think it's important to sort of establish your your. Gosh, I don't even know the right word that I'm that I'm looking for. It's it's important to establish your subject matter and your expertise in it in order to begin making those blockbuster posts. Because if you have a blockbuster post and it's the only post on your blog. Even if people really like it, they won't necessarily subscribe because if it doesn't seem like a going concern by, by somebody who's interesting, then a lot of people just pass you by and wait for next time. I see. So they need to see a body of work when they, when they hit that thing. They need to see a body of work. They need to be able to explore. Definitely. Rob, do you, what do you think about that? Yeah, I think you'll well, I think you'll need at least a few posts before someone's sure. going to subscribe. Um, I, I also, I sh- yeah, I... I think Pete brings up a good point in that there are different types of posts. I've never viewed it as like the pillar versus the blockbuster, but I've thought of it in my mind as some posts, like the title and the concept comes to you and you almost have that, um, what do we call it? The madness. The madness. You have that, like I've, yeah. I've had that. And those are the posts that I will crank out in one to two hours. And typically um, they wind up 
doing really well on Hacker News and just people in general say, wow, these are fantastic. It's the ones that I've had sitting around for a long time and I'll have an idea written in a notebook for six months or a year and I'm kind of not writing it and I decide to write it and it, I sit down and it does take me eight hours or 10 hours and I'm just struggling through it. Those tend to not work well for me. And I don't know if everyone has that experience, but I, I feel like I've kind of looked at it as like I'm trying to force something that isn't there, even though, boy, the concept is really good or I feel like this sure. needs to get out there. Um, the ones that are the most applicable to me right now and can be somewhat generalized. You know, I think that's the thing is like, yeah. you can't just say, oh, today this happened to me. That doesn't help me. You have to <laughs> that's, say that's what, what Twitter is for. Yeah, exactly. That's right. And whereas you right. have to, you know, kind of generalize it to, or at least give a lesson or something that helps people um, and is somehow informative. Yeah. And yeah, so, so I guess that's how I view it. So on that topic, I wanted to, um, Doing a little experiment here, if you guys don't mind, um, which is the idea for that demand post, okay, mm -hmm. where you throw out some some potential titles and yep. candidate titles. I want to read you. I, I I I've written about thirty thirty titles down over the past month <laughs> without writing them. You're not going to read out there. thirty titles, are you? No, I'm going to read out ten real okay. quick. And I just want to hear after I read out one, if you like it or you think it's interesting. Like if it's something you would want to read, just, you know, just whatever, make a noise, say yes or whatever. I just want to kind of hear how, what you guys think. And then I'm going to write, probably write most of these and I'm just going to kind of see what kind of predictor it is. Is that okay? Yep. Sure. Cool. Is it for that? Okay. First one, um, a startup is not an idea. It's a test. It's not a startup is not a test of an idea. It's a test of will. Bingo. Bingo. Okay. We got hey. one out of three. I'll, I'll tell you this. I'd read it if it got voted up on Hacker News already. And, and so okay. then that t would tell me that the... I didn't know, actually listen to what you said. What was it? Again? <laughs> <laughs> okay. okay. I like it. Okay. It's, you like it? Okay. Yeah, so that's it. Okay. So I'll give that a 2.5. We'll discuss this later because I didn't hear what you said. I just, I was prepared it's to a, say... A startup is not a test of an idea. It's a test of will. Yeah. That's good. Yeah. Okay. I give it a 2.5 out of 3. Why the future lies in code generation. That doesn't interest me. Silence, zero. Yeah, not really. I, I've read that article like 10 times before, and it was never any good. So, good. prove me wrong. Design, okay, number three, a design primer for hackers. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. I actually have a book. I have a book on the back burner about that we're potentially coming out with. I'm, I'm so good at design, it doesn't really apply to me. <laughs> yeah. And I'm so bad at design, it doesn't apply to me. <laughs> yeah, I would give that a one. That's like... Three point three. Uh, three. Okay, avoiding type one and type two startup errors. No idea what it means. No. Yeah. All right. Next, how I screwed up my Google acquisition. Oh, oh yes. Oh, that's a, yeah. I had a feeling that was gonna. I buried that one in the middle. I had a feeling that was gonna be a good one. Yep. Story time. Story time. Yeah. Um, the psycho the psychological edge of building versus trading. Mm, no. No. Zero. Okay, the payoff of launching with unscalable customer support. What? Uh, <laughs> <that's> <laughs> okay. You need to dumb that one down for me. Yeah. Yeah. Say stupid people. <laughs> okay, okay. How to increase your luck surface area. Yes. I, I like that one. Yeah, good. I yeah. wonder if it's because I know that phrase from this podcast, but that's interesting. Yeah. Pete, what's your vote? Yeah, I, I'll do it. I mean, the phrase in and of itself is sort of interesting. It makes me want to find out what it is. I mean, I know what it is, but... If if I didn't, I'd want to find out. Okay, stalking customers or how I made thirty thousand in, in, in sales in two days. Yeah, <laughs> sure, of course. I I click on that. Yeah. yeah. Okay. <laughs> Will your way to a thousand users? Hmm. Maybe. Uh, maybe. Yeah. 
Maybe, but you don't have a thousand users, so I don't believe you. (laughs) Okay, one point seven five. All right, so the winner is the winner. The ones are coming up next. How I screwed up my Google acquisition. Okay, that should have been your first one. What? That should have been the first. Yeah, that's gonna be my next one. Well, because I have one I already wrote, which which is entitled uh, "Forget the TechCrunch Launch." So how to how to screw up my tech my Google acquisition. How to increase your luck surface area and stocking customers are how I made 30,000 in sales in two days. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Yeah. See, that helped, guys. You probably saved me about 25, 30 hours of lost time. Awesome. Nice. You know, and, and the thing is, um, one thing I wanted to point out is some of those articles may be good, but maybe the titles just aren't where they need to be. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. So. Titles are so important. Super important. Yeah, absolutely. There's um, a there's a concept. How do I, this is a problem that I have as a blogger. How do I know what title is going to work before I post it? How can I somehow test it? How can I how can I how can I figure out among the four variations on the on the title which one is best? I don't know. I don't well, have an answer. Well, if you use just, demand post, if you use demand post and you type in like list of um uh, a, a list of of candidate articles titles, you can also put variations in individual titles, right? Yeah. Yeah. So it'd be kind of an A/B test. Sure. Yeah, that's. Neat. I'm telling I, you, demand post is. It's a million. Be a winner. Idea. <laughs> <laughs> it's a zero dollar diet. It'll be a thousand there before you know it. Yeah. Nobody's, <laughs> nobody's gonna pay for it. I don't know if you want to write it, Jason, but it doesn't. I mean, I, I'm. I know a little bit about WordPress, and, and it doesn't strike me as a difficult plugin to write at all. Yeah, cool. it's, it would be an easy plugin to write, and it's not something you're gonna make money from, but personally, you'll gain from it. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's what I was thinking. Well, let me if talk you to you. If you don't write it, I'll write it. Just let me know. <laughs> cool. Nice. <laughs> well, I was thinking I was going to tell anybody listening to this podcast, I get a six-week like option on this. If I don't okay. do it in six weeks, somebody else do it. But give me six weeks, please. Uh, okay. We'll do it. <laughs> but, but, if anybody thinks it's a good idea, but there's a good chance I won't do it, just like all the other stuff I talk about that I don't do. Yeah. Like most things, as Justin will claim. Yep. So, Justin, you you uh, you've been pinging in the background that it's time for um, some topics from either uh, Pete or Rob. Yeah, if either of you guys have a topic that you want to talk about, bring anything to the table. Got a couple Uh, things, maybe. Yeah, I did. I don't really have anything. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, Sorry. I got nothing. You said it it was optional. We didn't exactly say you have to bring something to the table, did we? (laughs) You said God, it, it, but you just made them feel like crap the way you just I'm said like, that, Jason. <laughs> <laughs> you're like, you're like, either of you guys bring anything? <laughs> should I, should I look? Should I read Jason's email here on it? Because it was like, if you don't bring anything, that's fine. We'll have plenty to talk about, and I opted for that option. <laughs> <laughs> that's probably a good option. Yeah. Did you listen to our last show yet, Rob? I did, and so. I went into it uh, to, for some background. Jason emailed me and said, hey, uh, before you come on, <laughs> I used you as an example in a few things last show. And so I did. <laughs> mm. I listened to it. And the first, I don't know, 15 minutes, I was like, oh, that wasn't that bad. You know, used <laughs> me as, as, and then I, but it was on in the background. And then towards the end, I was like, oh, man. <laughs> It was basically like if Rob started doing really shady stuff, then, you know, my friendship with, with him would suffer. I would distance myself from him. I would, and, and just like, this is a terrible example. Like, why are you giving an example of losing friendship with Rob, this guy who we just, just met? We, just because we had such a good time 
you know, beating him and everything. I just had to pick an example. Like, you know, things can go south. And afterwards, I was like, oh. yeah. Maybe that Bank. was a bad example. But then you clarified it at the end, and you're like, well, Rob hasn't done anything shady, just to be clear. Yeah, I think the best quote from that. Sorry for you. The best quote from the episode, though, is you said, we hung out for 90 minutes, and it felt like 15, or it felt like 20. I felt the exact same way. It was just time just was gone. Mm. Yeah. It was. It was. Yeah, the only time was it got slow when Justin kept talking about the <laughs> Talk about what? <laughs> Justin what? kept talking about the masterminding. I got a little bored of that after a while. Oh, God. Actually, you know what's funny? I just started a mastermind group here. We just met on oh, our It's like on Wednesday. Yeah, oh, interesting. Yeah. Yeah, we, we so, would just... I got no... T- tell us. Well, I, I had... I knew about mastermind groups and I have read Think and Grow Rich, and every, which is, I guess, the place where it originally came from. And... I had been sort of, it's one of those things that I'd been meaning to do for <laughs> 10 years or, or whatever. And uh, I finally was just decided to stop thinking about it and throw it out to a couple people here that are, that are local and say, Hey, let me um, buy you lunch and let's sit in my conference room and talk about our projects. So started that way. The way we're going to do it is kind of a round robin format. There are four of us and every time we meet, which right now is bi-weekly, Every time we meet, it'll be one person who's going to be the focus, and we'll talk about what opportunities and problems and, and everything that they have. So hopefully that'll be pretty cool. I don't I know. I don't really know if good it's, idea. Yeah. It, it felt good the first time, so we'll we'll see if it's actually helpful. I hear it is. So we should do we should do that, Jason. I don't know if I'd want to be in a mastermind group with you. I don't know if I can learn shit from I you. I already mastermind <laughs> you as it is. <laughs> <laughs> I constantly give Justin crap about whatever he's working on. That's good. It's good to have something like that, even right. if it is crap. Yeah. On yeah. air. On air. <laughs> yeah, on air. On air. Publicly. Right. Public oh, by the way, Rob, I just wanted to say one thing. I agonized over whether we should cut that out, that part out in the podcast. Oh, really? But oh, no, I thought it was hilarious. I'm glad you left it in. <laughs> I yeah. did. I was like, I was telling Justin, man, should we cut that out? Do you think Rob's going to get mad? He's like, listen, do you remember the Rob we met? He's not going to get mad. Yeah. <laughs> There's, yeah. Easy going. Yeah. I think, I think things like that are always, I don't know if they're always, be- well, maybe not always. They're most often best left in. I just don't, right. I don't have an issue with it at all. Good. Well, you well, should have heard bad. the stuff I- we cut out. <laughs> yeah. That's <laughs> <laughs> really bad. Yeah. Yeah. They're talking about your mom and disparaging your ancestry. Yeah. Nice. <laughs> it's a laugh a minute. Jason, I'm just going to call you back because your sound quality has gone down. Hey, 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 hey. <laughs> Too late. <laughs> and you're gone. That was... Uh, <laughs> hey, wait. <laughs> that was kind of cool. <laughs> I think I might start doing that as like a regular feature of the show. That was like a gong show. <laughs> yeah. oh, it's like you saying... locked him into a cage just then or something. Now he's yeah. saying back in 30 seconds. Oh, nice. Oh, he's got to okay. fill up his coffee. Well, we don't, we don't need him. No. Uh, <laughs> this, show, this show can completely go on without Jason. Yeah. <laughs> I, you know, I, I maybe I should wait for Jason, but I think I think it can go without his input for a sec. The nice thing about mastermind is that it makes you think about things, the things that you should be thinking about. It makes you present things, and it keeps your mind where it should be to make progress on things. And I think that's really important. Even if you don't do it with a mastermind group, I think it's important to maintained focus on, for example, if you are looking for 
investments or business ideas, you need to maintain that kind of focus. You need to have something like Hacker News or you need to have a community of entrepreneurs that you can bounce ideas off of to keep your mind fresh. So something like I, um, I'm tangentially involved with a entrepreneurship education not-for-profit. It's a, it, Essentially what they do is they have curricula for city high school kids. It's, this is in Philadelphia. It's called Startup Core. And they teach kids how to start and run businesses. And then they actually have a competition at the end where they give these kids seed capital, small amount, obviously, but they give kids seed capital to actually start the business that they came up with during this curriculum. And it's, it's that sort of, it's that sort of program and involvement that kind of keeps me and, and whoever else is involved with it fresh. I think that's, I think that's a good point. I've actually been considering starting a mastermind group for about the past year, year and a half since I moved to this new place, Fresno. Mm -hmm. And, um, I, I just haven't, I think it's like you said, you've been meaning to do it for 10 years and you just never did. Um, but I'm, I'm newly motivated hearing that you, you know, you just kind of did it and to hear your format, because that was one thing I was, um, thinking about. I knew that I would want one person in, you know, one person to present each time and kind of just talk about what they're doing and everyone to give feedback. Um, but I didn't know what else needed to happen. And so I'm interested to, uh, you know, follow you, that. Rob, could you give a brief description of what a mastermind group is? I wonder if a lot of if all of our listeners even know or even familiar with the term. Pete might be able to do it. He's actually read Think and Grow Rich. I got a chapter <laughs> in and stopped like four times. So I know the concepts. I've had other people explain it to me, but Pete, you'll probably do a better job. Perhaps. I'll give it a shot. A mastermind group is a group of like-minded people who have the same or similar goals. So for example, if you belong to a mastermind group to do with business, then everybody in your mastermind group is going to have their own business ideas or own business ventures going on. And the concept is that if you meet regularly and discuss the, the topical ideas that you have, then the entire group benefits by being in that sort of environment and the, the people discussing their ideas benefit directly when they get helpful critique and they get resources. So if somebody comes to me with a software idea, I can critique the idea. I can give them help on their business model. I can, I can help them connect to other software developers. And when the group is big enough, say 10 people, you should have almost limitless, limitless resources because you could say, oh, I'm, I'm thinking about making software for the uh, garbage management industry. And somebody goes, oh, my cousin Vinny's in the garbage man management industry. Let me, you know, let me connect you with him. And so Why is it always Vinny that's in the garbage <laughs> management industry? I, I, I was just riffing, you know, <laughs> I, maybe, maybe too much Sopranos. I don't know. Okay. But the point is that it, that this these group this group of people that has the same or similar goals are they're going to propel each other they're going to keep each other focused on what's important and they're going to hold each other accountable and if you don't have that you have to flounder you have to create your own ideas you have to critique yourself you have to uh, find and make connections as you need them 
And with a mastermind group, you don't have to do any of that because other people do that for you. How big um, can a mastermind group grow before it becomes Mm. uh, an unwieldy beast? I do not know the answer, but I think that it has to be pretty small. I think it should be less than a dozen people, maybe something like that. Or you'd have to change the format because I don't, I don't, I don't understand how somebody could get any kind of individual attention with more than a dozen people, because then you won't even, you won't be talking about yourself more than once every three months or once every six months or something. It seems like the ideal would be like five or four to six seems like the ideal. Yeah. Yeah. I've always thought of it topping out around eight. That I think, you know, but I, th- yeah, I think you're right. Four to six might be ideal. Um, but I feel like once you have something going, a lot of people are going to want to join as word gets out. And so you are going to have to have some type of criteria. Right. Keep well, that's, that's the other thing. The mastermind group is important to keep in mind that the, the concept is that you want to get people into the mastermind group who are on your same path, but further along, preferably far further along. So I guess it's tricky to get somebody to join your group who's going to add more value than you are. But it, I mean, that, I guess that's part of the sale. So the, the concept is to get people in who can really help you. I mean, if, if it's a, if it's a car dealership mastermind group, you want the guy who, who it has the super name recognition and has five dealerships in, in your local area. Well, you what don't do they get the guy, out of it? What do they get out of it? Well, that's, I mean, that's a good question. Maybe they get, um, maybe they get, if you, okay, for example, if you're just starting your car dealership and, you want to learn from all these guys, maybe what they get out of it is that you act like their gopher. You create the group. So you you don't only get that guy, you get the three other big local guys and you create a, a setting where they can meet and discuss the problems that they have and you take care of all the details. You provide the meeting space, you provide the food, you, you make it very easy for them to meet, have a, have a nice meeting, have a, have a uh, productive session with each other. And in return, you get to be, you get to be present. Right? I think it's a really funny example you bring up because I've met some car dealers and I just can't imagine them being friendly <laughs> to each other. You know, I, I don't know any car dealers. That was just, <laughs> it's just me talking. So, yeah. but, I mean, that's the idea though. You know, I mean, I'm sure, I'm sure if you found um, people in the software industry who had started um, companies that were, that were going concerns that were, that were very successful, say they were making, I don't know, 5 million in revenue a year and you found five of them, they want to talk to each other. I mean, generally speaking, they're, they're not, I guess they're not like car dealers, but they want to talk to each other and maybe you're not, you're not to that level and they wouldn't necessarily want to talk to you on your own. But if you, if you can create a context that does give them value, then, um, then I think you've got something. And, and plus people like that, they like sharing. I mean, it, like, why is Rob on this show? Because I don't know. That's a good share. question. Yeah. Why is he on the show, Justin? Rob, why are you on the show? <laughs> Rob, you were just about question. to say something. Yeah, I well, and you totally threw me off with this question. I have no <laughs> idea what to say. No, I, um, yeah, I, I honestly came on the show because I enjoy talking about this stuff. And there are so few people that I can actually talk about this with. You know what I'm saying? I mean, I don't. Yeah. My wife doesn't care. She's tired of hearing about it. And uh, <laughs> my friends, a lot of our friends socially don't, they barely have an idea. They, I tell them I'm a computer programmer and only if they dig deeper do I even get in. I mean, you, you guys all know that that's far from the truth at this point. Right? Yeah. I'm much more of a, of a software entrepreneur with multiple, you know, I mean, it's this intricate yeah. explanation that really nobody cares about. But 
you, the three people on this call actually understand the subtlety of, of what I do. Well, I'll tell you what's really amusing is is when I'm with my in-laws and Georgie's uh, mum or dad, they, they say, they're saying, so what do you do again? And I'm saying, well, one of the things I do is Plugio.com. And they're like, Plugio? And what's that? <laughs> what's that work with again? I'm like, uh, that's it's like it's a Twitter client. And they're like, Twitter? What's Twitter? No. Oh, man. Yeah, how do you even how do you even go from there? Yeah. yeah, my mom still doesn't know what I do. She's like, what do you do again? I'm like, for crying out loud, mom. <laughs> yeah. Like, but the idea of, you know, it's a Twitter productivity tool. They're like, what the hell is that? That just yeah. doesn't yeah, even no, make any sense. You're, you're way off the, uh, the where they're going to be able to have any understanding. I, mean, you just, uh, I build software is about the best you can understand. And it takes a while to explain to people what building software is. They think, oh, you fix computers? No, 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 no. <laughs> yeah. Like you actually make the machines? No, no, the software. No, they don't, yeah. don't get it. It's, it's difficult. But I mean, that's the answer, Jeff. I mean, people, people like sharing. A lot of those guys are actively looking for mentors or mentees, I mean. So that they can, for whatever reason, because they're blowhards or because they want to pass the mantle to somebody. Um, and does it need to be in person or could it be on Skype like this? Who knows? I, I, we're, I'm doing one in person, but I'm sure there have been successful ones that are teleconferences. Yeah, I've, I've looked at mastermind groups. I think to like my idea of it um, is that I don't have co-founders. So I don't have anyone to bounce ideas off of. And I, I have, I've used this, this expression before where I say data is my co-founder. And that's why I do so much split testing. I do tons I like of stuff. That. Because without data, I'm clueless because I have no one to talk to about it. But I found that while data can provide me with a, a, you know, a, a direction on things, it can help me make a decision, it doesn't provide me with motivation. And mm -hmm. that's kind of the one thing is I would love to have a group of people to talk with and kind of get over those. You have lulls, you know, you have valleys as you're, as you're trying to launch a new product or, or maybe sure. you're just uncertain about two or three different ideas and, and really there's no data that can get, help you make that decision. So that's how I viewed a mastermind group is it's like co-founders without, no one owns any of the other person's business, but they, they in the world, they probably know your business uh, the best of anyone aside from yourself. Well, I have to say, I mean, that's what I've always treated this podcast like, is like a mastermind group of who, mm -hmm. whoever happened to stumble yeah. on the show and also just through ch chatting with Jason. And it's completely helped. I mean, it's made such a huge difference for me. Yeah, it so. makes sense. And, and, you know, I think my, my entrepreneur senses are tingling that we're talking too much about this. And I think that maybe we should just start a Skype mastermind group and see how it goes. <laughs> just yeah. say, so, so when's good for you? Saturday good for you? <laughs> like we should just stop talking about it and do it. Right. right. Yeah. No, that's a good idea. The that's madness idea. has set in. The, the madness. madness. The madness. Be, that's the name of the group. The, the madness. madness. The I madness. Like Let's do it. <laughs> okay. So who else are we going to get in our mastermind group, Jason? Uh, so we've got Rob Walling, Pete Michaud, I think uh, Derek Sivers maybe. Yeah. I yeah. Know. He might be a little too big. And Peldy. Yeah, I think they're they might be a little too high up the. Uh, no, 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 no. They're they're good. They're good friends of mine. Well, I'll I'll give them a call. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right. So, um, Justin, how are we doing on time? Uh, we I think what we're doing we're doing well. We've we've uh got had a great podcast, chock a block full of great conversation, and um, yeah, I'm very happy with it. <laughs> yeah, we should probably we should probably uh you know wrap it up about now, right? I mean, let these guys go off and do uh, other stuff. Yeah, everybody continue with their madness. Okay. Um, well, guys, well, Pete, first of all, thanks so much for uh, coming back on the show. It was uh, we, you know, we really enjoyed talking with you the first time, and this has been great again catching up. 
And it's always an interesting uh, story hearing what you're doing. Well, thank you. And, uh, and Rob, uh, the same, same, uh, you know, we had a great time um, in our interview. We had a great time having coffee with you last week. And this was just another excuse to hang out with you, I guess. And, and likewise, and catch up. Look, and yeah, I look forward to doing it, doing it again in the future. Absolutely. Jason, just before you say that's a wrap, I also want to just thank both you guys. It's been a really, really great show. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Thanks. It's been great. We'll, we'll definitely do this. I think this is a format that we're going to continue experimenting with. I, I think it, uh, I think it can really work. Um, because once we've interviewed someone and they've turned out to be a, a, an interesting and fun guest, I mean, there's no reason not to bring them back on again. And, uh, you know, the, the more you guys are on, the more we can just talk about random stuff. We don't even have to talk about necessarily what we're doing specifically, just uh, anything. So, right. Yeah. Well, all right, guys. Uh, thanks again. That's a wrap. We're out. Okay, okay, so um, Rob, what could we ask for donations for if it's not the sound? Well, yeah, I was thinking like bandwidth or bandwidth. I'm trying to think of what else like Leo Laporte asked for. It's always like bandwidth, right? When they ask for well, donations. Well, it's for hosting and it's also... Hosting, I mean, yeah. I'll tell, you, I'll tell you what else we could use some money for. For like when we have lunch on Sundays. <laughs> I was just going to say food. We could get, <laughs> yeah, we could get like private flights and jeez. Uh, oh, Conference you, fees, or maybe you just don't. You know, like no agenda. You just don't get specific. So you get to support the help us support. The yeah, show. basically, it's oh, just yeah, this maybe, is how we make our living. Yeah, that, yeah, this is how we make our living. Yeah. <laughs> no, but that's actually a good point. I would, I would wonder if you'll get better results just saying support the show and not even saying bandwidth or hosting. I, or I think it's true. Yeah. I say, yeah, you know, this is how we make our living. And by the way, we don't live well. <laughs> <laughs> Give us beer money. Right? No, just we just support we're the struggling. show. Just support yeah. the show. Just We're struggling. We we're, we're on hard times.